0: And without further ado, let's jump back into the book of Acts. So if you would, please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. Speaking about the Hopkins was really a a perfect introduction. (laughs) Thinking about our love for churches and seeing them go forth, which is really what Acts is about. And if you remember, we've been studying the most faithful or most famous, whatever you want to call it in the book of Acts, little church in the Bible as it's lifted up. I said that because of how often it's spoken about and really it takes center stage in the book of Acts for at least the next 10 chapters and beyond launching the gospel forth through the Gentile areas and seeing Jew and Gentile come together and really Luke lifts up the church of Acts and says, look to them as a model. And so we've been taking some time to slow down to study this most faithful little church in the Bible, the church in Antioch, because the most faithful big church in the Bible at this time we could say would be Jerusalem. I was, I was up early this morning just thinking about the church in Antioch, kind of meditating on them and thinking about how I would introduce our time today because I'm so excited about what we're going to learn about Antioch today. And I just started jotting down a number of reasons that I'm particularly grateful for the church because really the more I study Antioch and see this healthy, faithful little church, the more I'm thankful for our church, though it has... Any church with sinners has limitations and weaknesses. I'm still thankful that we look like, in so many ways, the church in Antioch and other churches in the Bible. But I just started writing down reasons why I love the local church. And uh, I came up with 17. (laughs) I'm sure there's more, many more. But these were just kind of pouring out of my heart and in my mind as I was just thinking about my last 11 years in local church life. My first year as a Christian, most of you know, I was not involved in a church and I bounced in and out of churches my whole childhood mostly. And so really um, being in a healthy local church, I've been in about three now, I would say, throughout my Christianity, a couple on the front end and then this one for the longest period of time. and. And I just wrote down what I love about the church. I think it's good to think about these things because sometimes we forget what a privilege it is to be a part of the body of Christ. And when we study the church in Antioch, it ought to remind us how unique it is to be in a healthy local church and what a privilege, an undeserved privilege it is to be a part of the body of Christ. So I'll just rattle these off. There's no particular order, and I'll just lay them out to you. So here we are. Just start laying them out. The first I wrote down reasons why I'm so thankful for healthy local church life, is because I don't fit in in the world. (laughs) And, And that's very appropriate. As an alien and a stranger, the world is not your home. And so the church becomes the place where you fit in. You become those who your city is yet to come. My people are people of the church. The people of the world are my mission field. And so I love to come be and gather with God's people because this is where I fit in with God's family. Two, because I'm sinful. And I'm prone to drift and I need lots of encouragement. I was thinking about that. Hebrews 12, Hebrews 3, 12 and 13. You know, you encourage one another today so your foolish hearts won't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I I was just thinking in my mind how many direct conversations or indirect conversations or conversations I've overheard or sermons that were preached or discipleship meetings that I've had where God has used that in some way to show me a blind spot that had I not have seen, there's no telling what capacity I could have went to and sinned in that area. And yet local church life and body life has kept me hemmed in. I'm so thankful for that. I mean, think about that. You could walk down the hall and hear two people over overhear them talking and a principle comes up that hits your heart and immediately the Spirit of God's using it. You could be in a sermon, you could be in a conversation. Last 15 minutes, someone may have talked to you and encouraged you in an area, and you thought, wow, man, I needed that. I was already drifting. Someone this morning came up to me and said, I was talking with a brother at lunch this Friday, and he asked me, How are you doing in bitterness? <laughs> and this guy said to me, Man, that was good for me. Because I hadn't really thought of myself as a bitter person, but I've been meditating all weekend and i got some areas I need to work on. Body life. When sin comes up, the body is a protection. Three, I love the church because the world is broken, life is hard, and I need support in trials. Man, I just think about the amount of trials and tragedies and difficulties I've been able to walk my own heart through in body life here at this church and other churches and how many people I've seen suffer in the in the body and the body responds with compassion and grace and comes alongside people. And in Second Corinthians one comes to mind. The God of all comfort comforts us and how he comforts us, we comfort others. And I think, man, life in the local church is 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 your refuge in seasons of tragedy. And you know, I saw Lindsay Silcox this morning. Well, sorry, Lindsay Sanders now. But for years, this church suffered and walked with her as she cared for her husband who was dying of cancer. And we sent him to heaven at 33 and walked with her the whole way. And so many people stayed with her at the hospital. And now she's remarried with two kids. But I remember our church weeping and suffering and mourning with her. And I think, I need the church because life's hard. (laughs)
1: If I could just, just, you know... So many here, as you guys are in dating relationships, and some of those relationships are moving towards marriages. Over nine months into their marriage, the diagnosis of a malignant cancer that most likely is not curable, and three and a half years of battling. So, a young widow, a very young widow, gets remarried, now is with two children.
0: And is going to be a pastor's wife. (laughs) She married Philip. I called that, by the way, when he came down. I said to Bethany, "That's going to happen right there."
1: Everybody wants to be a part. Of e- everyone wants to take credit.
0: And when, but we all don't talk about all the ones we called that don't happen, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Called that one. Whoops. Yeah. That's okay. That encourages us in the body. That's great, Mike. Thank you for that. Wow. Fourth reason I love the church. I crave fellowship. Isn't there nothing like showing up and being with God's people and just sharing koinonia, spiritual resources, talking and laughing and enjoying life and ministry, sharing burdens, sharing sorrows? I I mean, you think about how many times the New Testament exhorts you to greet one another with a holy kiss, with warmth. Just body life. I mean, you cannot... You cannot match it. I love the church because I love and I crave fellowship. I need it. I'm, I'm dry without it. Five, fifth reason, because I'm starving to be fed by my shepherds. Pastor Jerry is my shepherd. And our other men here, many of the older men, I view as my shepherds. Sermons are described as nutrition for your soul, 1 Peter 2. It's one thing to hear a sermon from a digital shepherd. It's another thing to hear a sermon from the shepherds that know your life and know the body and know our frame and know the ups and the downs of body life. You need shepherds. I come here and I'm like, I need sermons from my shepherd. That's why I love the church. I need to be fed. I love that. Six, why I love the church? Because my individual identity in Christ is only known and expressed corporately in the Scripture. The way I know who I am in Christ is who I know I am corporately being part of His body. I love the idea that I'm one small piece of, as an individual latched into the corporate body of Christ. I love that. Seven. Why I love the church is because I know when persecution comes in this country, it's going to be my refuge. I think about that. You may not. I think about it all the time. Persecution's coming. I don't know when. Maybe my life, our lifetime. Maybe my kids. I don't know. But a day is coming... And hate speech will be thrust upon us and you, you will not find friends outside of faithful, local churches. Most of church history, that's been their life. So I love the church because I know it's where I'll run when persecution comes. Eight. I love the church because I get to sing corporately. Man, this is the place where I get to lift my voice to the Lord and sing to one another's and sing to the Lord. I love the church, number nine, because... It is the place that I go where I get to tangibly witness the grace of God on display. Think about it. Every Lord's Day that we show up and every time we gather together in a Bible study, you're hearing about people's joys, hearing about people's trials, hearing about conversions, hearing about future baptisms, hearing about wrecked lives that are transformed that are now flourishing, hearing about marriages that were falling apart and then they're rescued by the grace of the gospel, hearing about people having courage that were weak, on and on and on. Body life is full of you just witnessing the grace of God. There's no other way you're going to be able to witness God's grace outside of body life. I love that. Man, I love that. It fires me up to come to church just to hear what God's done in one week. Think how much happens in our lives. People always say, I leave for two weeks. I don't even know what happened. I know a lot happens. We're we're busy sinners. (laughs) And we're busy sanctified saints. You know, we're growing. Ten. Because the church is my eternal family. You know what I think about? My earthly family, if they don't know Christ, my relationship with them will end when I die or they die. But those that I'm united with by the blood of Christ, I'm building relationships now that will last for eternity. Think about that. Your family, that's your blood family, those that have not responded to the gospel and trusted in Jesus Christ, that relationship will end. Your spiritual family, purchased by the blood of Christ, together... United in Christ. Right now, you're building relationships that are going to go a long time. Forever. Think about that. I love that. I'm, I'm pouring into eternal relationships and body life. 11. Why I love the church is because Jesus loved the church. <laughs> he loved the church and He gave Himself for her, so how could I not love the church? I love the English and Scottish Reformation because of that. Because they died for the church. I love the bride of Christ because Jesus bled and died for the church. 12. I love the church because it's where I get to remember Christ and take communion. I love gathering with God's people. Communion is always a corporate event in the New Testament, it's never an individual event. Body life is where you gather to take communion and remember Christ. I love that. 13. I love the church because I'm desperate for shepherds' protection. I'm a sheep too. And I'm vulnerable, just like you. All of us are. And the Bible says in 1 Peter 5 that shepherds, even us shepherds co-shepherding each other, we lead, we feed, and we guide. And you know what happens to the sheep that doesn't have a shepherd? They're not fed and malnourished and they're vulnerable to wolves. I love the church because I love the protection and care of knowing I have shepherds. So grateful for that. Acts 20, wolves are going to rise up. I need shepherds. 14, I'm almost done. I love the church... Because it's where I get to use my gifts. Listen, if you don't use your spirit-wrought gifts, you dry up spiritually. God gives you a packaging of gifts to use. I love the church because I get to use my gifts. And it makes my Christian life full. Fifteen. I love the church because it's where I get to most know redemptive love when sin happens. You say, what do I mean? I mean, when you have sin in an encounter with an unbeliever... Colossians 3 says the peace of Christ is what rules the only, you can only go so far with an unbeliever redemptive love is the type of love that can only come through Christ where, where we as sinners can come together and even sin against one another and have discomforts and difficulties and struggle and come together and confess and forgive because of Christ you can only know that and see that between believers and it most happens in the church because guess what there are still sinners here the church still has problems. There's still weaknesses. We're all not, we've all not fully arrived. There's still going to be conflict. How many discussions are there in the Bible about unity? I love the church because I've experienced confession and forgiveness and people loving me when I'm at my worst and me having the opportunity to apply 1 Corinthians 13 and love them when they're at their worst. I love the church because that people that, that run from church life when there's, when there's conflict and they don't get the privilege of knowing true redemptive love. I love that. People are unlovely, you get to love them. And guess what? When you're unlovely, guess what? People get to love you. And you're going to be unlovely a lot. People get to love you. 1 Corinthians 13, if you think about it, is all in response to someone sinning against you. Love is patient. (laughs) Love does not revile. On and on. That's 15. 16. I love the church because my life would be empty without the church. I was thinking about that. If you don't have the church and you value and fill up your time with everything an unbeliever does, even if you're a Christian, there's still emptiness. You, you can go as far as happiness goes for the unbeliever. But why do we all live here, half of us in flat Jupiter? <laughs> People say, why do you live in flat Jupiter with no mountains and you grew up around mountains and yeah, it's the beach, you can have the beach lots of places. Why do you live here? Because I love my church. Even before I was on staff here, my wife and I, we wanted to be in a healthy local church life. Geography doesn't matter to me if I have a healthy local church. My hobbies are not going to bring happiness like church life. But you don't have that. You're just like the lost world. And then 17, I love the church because it's where I get to watch godly examples and have a cloud of witnesses. Around here is where you get to see people that are a little bit ahead of you so you can learn and even Hebrews 13, 7, watch their life, Philippians 3, 17, and model your life after it. And then you get the cloud of witnesses of those who have gone before to give you courage and your discouragement. I need that. I don't know about you, but I'm desperate for it. So those are my 17 reasons that I love the church. Now I say all of that because it introduces perfectly why we need to look at Antioch. Because Antioch lifts to the surface the blessing of healthy local church life. And I want to say this to you, beloved, as wonderful as those things all are, those all fall apart if we don't apply what the Bible says we need to do as individuals in church life. Do you realize how fragile church life is? Have you thought about that? Ephesus was the strongest lifted up next to Antioch and some others, one of the strongest, healthy local churches. And some 30 years after they were born, Acts 19, Jesus is rebuking them saying, you're no longer a loving church. Church life is fragile, Revelation 2. So we need to study ecclesiology and study the church and look at healthy churches so that we can make sure we continue to contribute. And Grace Emanuel, if you're a member of this church here, you can be a part of this and align our will with it and we can look at what Luke lifts up as healthy local church life. And we can strive in it as a congregation. No church is impervious to having their lampstand taken, right? And Revelation 2 and 3 doesn't say when Jesus took the lampstand from some of those churches, they stopped showing up. He just left the building. I was telling someone this week when someone was uh, making an accusation about Grace Emmanuel that was, a, was not a biblical accusation. I said to them, I said, you know, all that matters to me is not what they said, but that if Jesus would agree with it. If Jesus attended Grace Emmanuel, if he thought the accusation was that we're legalistic. If Jesus attended Grace Emmanuel and he came in and I define legalism biblically and Jesus thought we're legalistic, then I'm concerned. So let's take a look at biblical legalism and if Jesus would say it, then I'm concerned. But beloved, this local church calls us to have biblical categories and think about healthy local church life. So, we've been looking at seven characteristics of what I call the most faithful little church in the Bible. The church in Antioch. And remember what I said to you last time. Remember the question I asked you? Would you what? Fit in in Antioch. And I think it's a good question. If we were transported back to this time, would I fit in in this healthy, new, believing congregation? It's not to say that they're that much different than any healthy local church. It's just helpful to think about transporting our minds back and looking at them on the pages of Scripture. But I guarantee Antioch was not without sinners, were they? They were still sinners there. They may have read this later on and thought, wow, we need need to maintain that. So this is not perfection. This is direction. But it's still good to say, would I fit in in Antioch with this healthy church? And we saw two characteristics so far. First, they were affirmed by godly men as evidencing the unmistakable grace of God. And second, they had a voracious appetite to hear Scripture and apply it without compromise. And so let's read through our section, and we're going to look at the third and fourth today. The third characteristic is this. They did not hesitate to serve other needy churches at great personal cost to self. They did not hesitate to serve other needy churches at great personal cost to self. Let's just, look, just jump down to 27 and 28. Church is flourishing, she's thriving, she was born under persecution, it's a mostly Gentile church. Jews are going to be added in the next couple chapters. By Acts 15, you got Jew and Gentile. Look at 27 and 28. The church is doing great, she's wonderful, and Luke lifts to the surface and says, let me tell you something else unique about this church. Now at this time, verse 27 of chapter 11, as the church is flourishing... Some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now remember, Jerusalem's the first church ever planted. We're probably about 14 years from when Jerusalem was planted. And Jerusalem sends down some prophets, one in particular named Agabus, to give them a summary of some burdening things that are about to arise. So notice. Prophets come down, verse 28, one of them is named Agabus. All we know about Agabus is he shows up here and he shows up in chapter 21 and he's put forth as a faithful prophet in the New Testament. He stood up, notice 28, he stood up, so it implies that there was corporate gathering. Maybe like here today, he'd come up and stand behind the pulpit, and he said, I have a prophecy. Now you may say, wait a second, Pastor, prophecy. Well, prophecy is still very active at this time. The church is being established, it's being formed, apostles and prophets are still very much active at church life, and a prophet would really do three things, most most would think. They would teach people about oftentimes maybe helping them connect dots of prophecies in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the New. They were Bible teachers. They also just taught general theology, which we'll see in a couple of chapters. They taught the Word of God. And then they also had predictions of the future. Agabus right here is about to predict a particular tragedy and a particular time it's going to happen. And here's what's encouraging. You read secular material. This is all affirmed by historians that have written back and talked about this time. At this time, there was a great famine in the land. And he is predicting it right now. So he, this may be 46, maybe 48, sometime in this time period. AD 46, 48. Notice. One of them was named Agabus, and he stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world, and this took place in the reign of Claudius. And we have historical facts from many scholars, Josephus and others. There was two great famines during the time of Claudius when he was the emperor, and one of them falls right in this time period, A.D. 46 to A.D. 48. So that's actually being documented here. But you have to understand, when we say famine, we kind of read famine and then cross over it. I mean, have you ever studied biblical famine? What was happening during an actual famine? Actual famines were horrific times of starvation. In fact, Jesus, when Luke 4.25, talking about famines, said, But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel, speaking back of a famine, when a great famine came over the land. Why were there widows? Because probably men were willing to give up their own food so that their kids and wives could have it, and then they'd starve to death. A famine means no access to food, no ability to have it. Uh, typically, there was either a shortage in rain, so the crops weren't coming, or maybe a disease hit the crops or something. A famine hits the land. People are starving to death. This is this is not like you and I missing a couple meals and getting hangry. What do they call it, right? There's some restaurant I saw yesterday. Hangry, you're hungry and angry, so you go there. This this is not hangry. This, This is absolute devastation to an entire culture. And notice he predicts the location. He says there's gonna be a famine. And he says all over the world. That, that's shorthand probably at this time for all over the Roman world. But he says it's going to focus and the worst of it is going to be, as we'll find out in a moment, in Judea. If you read on, notice where they, they focus their efforts. The famine's going to come in the land, Agabus says. twenty nine, Verse 30, Uh, Twenty-nine, And the proportion that any of the disciples had made, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief for their brethren living in Judea. And if you study Josephus and you study during this time, the worst of the famine would have hit probably in Judea, the larger area around Jerusalem to the north. So, beloved, what do we have going on here? Let's just back up for a second. Luke says there's a great famine, and we actually have a hunger relief program. Did you know that the Bible has hunger relief programs for churches? What you have going on here is you have believers in Antioch who are about to make incredible personal sacrifices for a hunger relief program to go to local churches. That does not mean that James 1, when it says we care for orphans and widows, that Christians don't do that. But you can read your New Testament 20 times and you will not find a hunger relief program for the outside world. But what you will find in Acts 2 and Acts 4 and Acts 11 is relief and hunger support for local churches that were struggling. And so when we get to this characteristic, here it is. Here is this church. And what makes this unique is, remember, Acts 2 and Acts 4, when they were helping the suffering believers, they were all in the church in Jerusalem. I think what's unique about this is, Antioch's not just serving their own local church, they're about to go above and beyond and make huge sacrifices pushing them to the end of their means to serve another suffering church or many suffering churches, churches they would probably never meet and never know the people at those churches, and yet the need is made known and they step up to respond. Now think about that. That's a, that's a unique culture in church life where they not only meet the needs in their own church and support their own church, but they take an inventory in their personal life when they hear a need and say, how can we even help those churches? Notice what he says there. I find this very interesting. 29, they did not hesitate. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, that is shorthand for saying, they took an inventory on their personal resources, they weren't going to put themselves in some position where it would be irresponsible and bad stewardship, but as they were able, above and beyond, they heard that our fellow brethren, some of them are even going to starve to death, let's have a corporate offering, gather up resources, and send it to them to help these fellow believers at these local churches. And I love what it says here. Notice, they determined. That's language of conviction. They gathered together and out of conviction, no one had to prod them or prompt them or push them. A need was made known and a whole bunch of people stepped up to meet that need. Now, beloved, I think about this and I, th- I think about a couple things. Do you remember who the first person to step up in the book of Acts in chapter four was to meet a need when there was people who didn't have locations to live and he sold some of his property so they could have it, and he was put as a contrast in Acts 4 to Ananias and Sapphira, and he laid his money down at the apostles' feet. Who was that? Who's their pastor right now? Wow, I thought about that. What a connection. The personality of this church is taking on the heart of its pastor. He it was a generous, godly man who was willing to give. They couldn't say, you wouldn't do that, Barnabas. He's saying, are you kidding? Right when I got saved, I sold a bunch of extra property that I didn't need and I gave the resources for the people that had all come in and got saved after Pentecost. Beloved, this was a church that sent and support and used resources to help other churches. I love that. You may not know this, but I was thinking about just the last few years, the privilege of being Grace Emmanuel and thinking about some of our efforts. You you may not know, but we've had church plants that have been sent out by us, that God has given us opportunity to take resources many of you give to the church and go down and they had big needs in body life and we were able to give resources down to support them. You may not know this, but we've given large resources to help one of our churches that we support in India. In Italy. In Argentina. Just in the last three or four years. And I thought about it. I thought, man, I love our elders. That their heart is not, let's just serve Jerusalem and let's take care of Jerusalem. But well, one of our sister churches has a need and they're hurting. And we can meet it. And we have the capacity in Jupiter. And Antioch was a large city and they had the capacity. They gathered together and the elders made a decision, as you'll see in Jerusalem, to send those resources and where it should be sent. I think, man, that... That's a sweet thing to have a a church. It's one thing to have a healthy church that takes care of home, but it's another church, another thing to make extra sacrifices to meet needs at other places. So let me ask you, in Antioch, you were there. How, how, How do you do when you hear needs are made known and there's an opportunity to meet that need and serve in that capacity? What happens in your heart? I think it's a good test. I was convicted thinking about this week. Is my heart leaping at the opportunity to make personal sacrifices, not only to serve my own church and my home church, but when I hear about other ministries where there's needs, does my heart leap at the opportunity to make personal sacrifices to meet it? That's what Antioch is being put forth for us to see. You know, in our narcissistic culture, I think it's pretty hard for us to think that selflessly. I I think we often serve... That costs uh, in ways that cost us very little, but true service, beloved, is that which costs you much. And I was convicted thinking about. The fact that true sacrifice is that which costs you. And here is Antioch gathering together to help fellow churches. It's easy for us when we have a name and a face and it's a friend and we've wept with them and we've cried with them. We know it. It's another thing to have uh, no name, no face, need known, another church, believer suffering. And because I love the church and I love Christ, I will rise up and look at my life and see if I need to pull something down to find some extra resources so I can send it with the men to meet that need. That, that's a whole nother level of sacrifice. Man, that is a big-hearted church. We, We can always continue to learn from that here. We do it well, but man, we can excel still more. I was convicted in that, thinking about it. Another note here, just as you're thinking about that, just a footnote. Look who the resources were sent with. Notice verse 30. They gathered up these resources to send them to Judea, and they sent them in the charge of Barnabas and Saul, So you got Paul and Barnabas. The two pastors are taking these resources. But just as a footnote, look at in Jerusalem where the resources are landing. So you got great sacrifice, great personal cost of self, servants serving, and the resources are taken. Notice at the end of 30, there's an important note. You don't want to miss this for your ecclesiology. It was sent to the elders. When did elders get taught about in the book of Acts? They haven't been. But all of a sudden we have elders, some 14 years later after the church is planted, established in Jerusalem. Now just take that as a footnote. It was the apostles leading the church in Jerusalem, but now you have established elders leading that church and the apostles are spread out. So where did the concept of elders leading and them receiving the resources so they can distribute it come from? Well, I can only conclude Jesus 40 days with the disciples before He ascended in Acts 1. Jesus spent 40 days with the apostles equipping them on the next season. He not only taught them about where the gospel needed to go forth, but he taught them about the church and the structure of the church and they needed to raise up elders to oversee body life and take in resources to meet needs. And male leadership needed to be ahead of that. And here we are 14 years later and elders just emerge. And what's assumed by Luke is everybody understands eldership by now. Because by the time we get to 14, the new churches are born. And guess what they do? Establish elders in every church. No one formally taught it. I love that little footnote. It's just there. Hello, elders are a thing. They had elders in the, in, the, in the Jerusalem, in the temples in Judaism, but I'm sure the apostles would have wondered, do you want us taking some of that hierarchy from Judaism and bringing it into the New Testament church? What's that look like, Jesus? And he spent 40 days, and he clearly must have laid out for them what it looks like for elders to lead churches because these men are functioning in their capacity. And the New Testament ends up telling us all that they do, but here they just emerge. I think that's a neat footnote. I hope you understand how important the book of Acts represents the church. So, let's back up. Beloved, would you fit in an Antioch in the sense that when needs were known by other needy churches at great personal cost to self, would you not hesitate to see if you could look at your life and meet those needs? That's how you'd fit in an Antioch. That's our third characteristic. Now our fourth. We'll spend the rest of our time here today. I love this. We've seen they were affirmed by godly men for the grace of God. They had a voracious appetite for Scripture to apply it. They did not hesitate to serve other needy churches at personal cost to self. And here's four. Their holy living and bold outreach was used by God to win many to Christ. There's a little point that I skipped over deliberately that I want you to look at. Their holy living and bold outreach was used by God to win many to Christ. Look back at verses 22 and 24, chapter 11. We're going to go back. I want you to read this the way Luke lays it out. Look at 22. The news about them, that's the church in Antioch, reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Now watch this. When he arrived, he witnessed the grace of God. That is, he witnessed the power of God on display in their life. It was unmistakable. God had met these people and changed them. He rejoiced and began to encourage them. Now notice... Barnabas is now equipping the church with the Word of God. He encouraged them. He poured the Word of God in them. He started shepherding them right from the onset. And then he's going to go get Paul with a resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. He was saying, don't drift on what God has done in your life. Hold on to your convictions. Then skip the beginning of verse 24 and just go dot, dot, dot. And look at the little word there, and. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. The beginning of 24 where he talks about Barnabas being a good man, that's offline language. Online you can read 23 and 24 like this. Just look at it with me. Barnabas arrived. He saw the grace of God and the power of transformation. He starts pouring the word of God into these saints. They're equipped. They're fortified. The grace of God is going all over their life. In fact, so much so, they end up being called Christians here in a moment. And it's so powerful, and their testimony is so robust, and they have such an outreaching heart, dot, 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 the end of 24. Considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. Beloved, do you see what Luke is showing? When Barnabas came and equipped them, it wasn't just about those four and no more. This was an outreaching church. In fact, so much so that considerable, lots and lots of people started coming to Christ as the Antioch Christians went out into their sphere of influence by being equipped by Barnabas. Now think about that. What type of church does it take to be the type of place that when they get equipped, they go out with such powerful holy lives and such bold proclamation, God uses them to bring loads and loads is the idea to Christ. Now, now back up for a second. This would mean for many people to come to Christ, God is the one that saves, right? God is the author of salvation. He has the power to save, start to finish, author and perfecter. However, the Bible says He uses means and the means, Roman 10, is What? Needs preachers. We need the gospel. And the means he uses, 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, is holy lives. Titus two eleven. You show off the beauty of the gospel. Oh, well, Titus 2, all the way down, really. So think about this. Now back up with me. If you were in Antioch, here's what it looked like. You came to church, ready? You got equipped by Barnabas. He taught you the word of God. Your life was being transformed. You go out into your... There's no, no campaign, it doesn't look like, put together. All we know is they went out into their sphere of influence... And they were bold in their preaching. Their holy lives were so exemplary. People said, you're one of those Christians. you're You're radically different than you used to be. And then they were saying, and let me tell you what happened in my life. Let me tell you about Jesus the Nazarene who saved me. This was a church that was reaching out. Beloved, In your sphere of influence and my sphere of influence, to be like Antioch would mean that we leave and are so blown away by the grace of God in our life that we reach out into others and want to see them know the same grace. This was a a burdened church for souls. And you know what I want you to think about for a second? Considerable numbers were brought to the church of what types of people. Now think with me for a second. I want you, this is very important for our day. Think with me about this. There was loads of Jews... So self-deceived people <laughs> and loads of other pagans worshiping false gods. Remember, this church fills up with Jews by Acts 15. You've got trouble in the church between Jew and Gentile. What is a Jew at this time? They would be similar to what we'd call a self-deceived, maybe professing Christian. They think they're right with God. They think they're okay with God. But their understanding of Christ is wrong and their lives don't match what happens when the Holy Spirit indwells a life and transformed them. Who are the hardest people in your life to reach? Those that think they're found. What does it take for you to sit down with a professing Christian and open up your Bible to the doctrine of assurance and start to help them see how worldly their life may be in light of what Scripture says? Those are the toughest conversations. The hardest thing to do in the world, right, is to talk to the person that thinks they're found, you're concerned they're lost, and they're not wanting to hear about, why do I need a Christ I already have? Or the Jews would have said, why do I need to hear about a, a, a Messiah that is in the future and you're telling me He's already come? I don't need that. Beloved, I think if we took this and extracted it by implication, we, we get sharing with pagans. Sometimes those that are outright pagans that are God rejectors, they're easier to share the gospel with, Right? They're actually more tolerant. I'll listen to you. Give me a new word. Yeah, 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 yeah. The hard ones are when you sit down with the religious person in a false system of religion. Roman Catholicism, Judaism, Mormonism, Hinduism, whatever it is. Or professing country music Christianity. Where their Christianity is no more than what's on their lips, but their life doesn't match it. I think for us to be like Antioch, by implication, I was thinking today, we need to be like Antioch. And they were reaching into the self-deceived Jewish mind and heart and giving them the truth. Well, we have loads of self-deceived people around us who think they're right with Christ, but their life doesn't match their profession. I found a great quote by John Piper on that. And I think if, we can, if you'll allow me to take Antioch, thinking about self-deceived Jews, and we have self-deceived professing Christians, and they're the hardest to speak to, I think to be like Antioch, we have to be courageous enough to go to those people we're concerned about their lost condition as well as go to the outright God rejectors and pagans that don't have any association with religion. We need to do both to be like Antioch. John Piper says, here, here's why he describes it so tough to help people sometimes in America who are self-deceived. It would have been just like those Jews, showing up to temple all the time, sinking their right with God, and they were lost. Here's what Piper says. When people today essentially say they receive Christ, they do not receive Him as supremely valuable. They receive Him simply as a sin forgiver because they love being guilt-free, a rescuer from hell because they love being pain-free, as a healer because they love being disease-free, and as a protector because they love being safe, and as a prosperity giver because they love wealth, and as a creator because they want a personal universe, and as a lord of history because they want order and purpose. But they do not receive Him as supremely and personally valuable for who He is. They don't receive Him as He really is, more glorious, more beautiful, more wonderful, more satisfying than anything in the universe. They don't prize Him or treasure Him or cherish Him or delight in Him. Or to say it another way, they receive Christ in a way that requires no change in their nature. Man... You don't have to be born again to love being guilt-free and pain-free and disease-free and safe and wealthy. All natural men without the spiritual life love these things. But to embrace Jesus as your supreme treasure requires a new nature. No one does this naturally. You must be born again. You must be a new creature in Christ. You must be made spiritually alive. Beloved, those Antioch burdened believers would have went to their Jewish friends that went to the synagogue and said, you're trying to think you can get to God on your own strength. You're not right with Him. Let me show you why. We, in the same way, have many in our life that have Christianity by title, but they don't show the sign of being born again. They're not brand new. They're still the old person. They just attach spiritual camouflage to the old life, but there's no power. We have to be like Antioch and be courageous enough to go to them and say, I love you enough that I want you to consider some things from the Scripture on what God says happened when He causes rebirth. Because you must be born again to know you're right with Him. I love thinking about this church filling up with the self-deceived because that is in so much today what is needed in the American Evangelical Church of self-deceived lost people. I love, um, I love again, uh, we'll, we'll have it here in a couple weeks, the waters of baptism. We usually have both. And I think that's healthy in our day. We have the self-deceived who thought they were right with God and then were shown... Biblically, what God says He does to transform a heart called the repentance, and God awakened their mind and heart, and they were saved. And we have those that just had no category for God in the past, and were God rejectors, and there as well. I think the baptism pools at Antioch were filled up with the same types of people. Now, God is the author of salvation, but the means that He uses is we must be courageous enough to go. So, I guess this is my exhortation to Grace Emmanuel and College and Career Group: Are you as courageous as Antioch to step into the difficulty like that?
1: Darren, some years ago, uh, one of the most profound baptisms that I saw was the parents of two of their children. The children came to Christ through the ministry of the church, and the parents witnessed that, saw the power in that in terms of being born again, and realized that they were Pharisees. And they were not regenerated. And to see those parents in the waters of baptism after so many years of serving the church, even being missionaries in the church locally, wow. uh, to be able to acknowledge that uh, was the work of God, tr- transformative for me. Uh, wow! Just how impactful of, of that illustration that you're, you're painting. Right.
0: God used some some this Antioch. You know, you probably would have seen that all over Jerusalem. Self-deceived Jews coming, seeing their kids born again. Let me read a quote that I found that I think will be very appropriate for this comment. Here's what Charles Spurgeon, three quotes I compiled from him on this. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. You either have a burden for souls or you're not genuine. Because to not have a burden for souls would be like saying, I have the cure for cancer but, and it's healed me, but I just don't want to give it to you and you have cancer. Well, that, that would be impossible if you're, unless you're the most unloving person on the planet, which would mean you can't be a Christian. He says this as well. Spurgeon says, God save me from living in comfort while sinners are sinking into hell. And then he says this line that I think captures probably what Antioch must have done to go into that Jewish community and preach, even as Gentiles, some of them. Reckon then that to acquire soul-winning power, you will have to go through mental torment and soul distress. You must go into the fire if you're going to pull others out of it. If you will have to dive into the flood uh, excuse me and you will have to dive into the floods if you're going to draw others out of the water. you cannot work with a fire escape without feeling the scorch of the flame, nor man a lifeboat without being covered with the waves. We must be courageous to be like Antioch, to go to the pagans that are God rejectors and, and hate him and give them the truth and the self-deceived. You know, when God saved me, beloved, I've told you this, that's what gave me confidence I was born again. I was a, I read my Bible. I had my John MacArthur study Bible, had it together, read my notes. You know, I would go to church some, but I was kind of loosely attached to it. I had some morality. I was the chaplain for the baseball team. People would come, ooh, who's the, who's the chaplain representative? But I love that. I just, man, I was such a good Pharisee. That just fed all my flesh. Come on, tell me how great of a Christian I am. Oh, you want to meet another great Christian? Oh, glad you're here. <laughs> glad you've been, had my presence bestowed upon you. That was me. But when I saw my bankruptcy and I saw hell would be appropriate, I should go there, hell should have been my location, yet God in His mercy sent Jesus Christ to save me and He was my redemption and my pardon and I trusted in Him, immediately what happened in me is I stopped looking around at everyone like, how can I make sure they think well of me? And literally, the moment I was converted, scales fell off. I've told you guys before, I walked on the baseball field, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and I looked at the field and I thought, oh my goodness, everybody on this field is going to hell. I have got to start telling somebody about Christ. My team was full of lost people. What happened? Spiritual eyes were given to me by God and I was burdened for what He was burdened about. I'm not saying everyone needs to have that same caliber of burden. I'm just saying conversion. God says when He saves you, you'll start to become burdened. That's what gave me confidence when I was saved. I had power over sin. I was burdened for souls. Look at 2 Corinthians 5. We'll end with this. Our our time's coming to an end. Paul says, when you are saved and born again, you will become like Antioch. Remember, this happened in Antioch as a result of the grace of God wrecking their old life and making them new. Paul says, when someone becomes born again, they get burdened for souls. Notice 15 and 16. One of my favorite sections in the whole New Testament right here. Christ died, verse 15, 2 Corinthians 5. He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves. What's he saying? Before Christ saved you, all you did was live for yourself. When He saved you, He reoriented you, gave you a new heart, the mind of Christ, and a new set of spiritual eyeballs to see like He does in some capacity. So that you would no longer live for yourself, but for Him who died and rose again. On their behalf. So you'd start living for Christ. Therefore, as a direct logical implication, Paul says, if you are living in verse 15, therefore, what is the therefore? Therefore, if 15 happened to you, then 16 becomes the result. Therefore, from now on, we no longer recognize anyone according to the flesh. You now start seeing souls. You don't just look at skin and blood and see people that will be okay, you hope they make it and have they have a good life. You see souls that will spend eternity in heaven or hell and you want to reach them with the message of Christ. That's what happened in Antioch and loads of people came to be saved. Charles Spurgeon, if sinners be damned, at, l- at least let them leap over hell to hell over our dead bodies and if they perish let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees imploring them to stay if hell must be filled let it be filled with the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for this must have been a praying church a warning church a burden church and they must have gone into their sphere of influence and had the courage to speak even when it cost them relationships because they loved souls in their conversion so would you fit in in Antioch are you burdened for souls? Listen, I just love you guys enough to say, if you're in here and you're not burdened for souls on any capacity, you just kind of exist week to week, coming into college and career, you leave, you do the church thing, you go here, Jerry, you go on. You go through your week and you don't look around and realize people around you are going to populate hell. You need to be concerned about your own soul because when God saves a soul, He changes them and they start thinking like Him. And those of you that love the Lord and love it here, this group, I think, represents this. The visitors that come here each week. The way you guys reach out. Our campus Bible studies. You're very Antiochish, and I love that, but excel still more. There's people in our lives we need to pray for and warn and reach out to. Amen? Amen? I bet you have a list of names in your head. And there may be an opportunity in days ahead where a church will have a need, where we could step up and meet it and make personal sacrifices. Let's pray. Lord, thanks so much for this church in Antioch. Thanks for allowing us to see when they got equipped, they spread out and more souls were saved. Thank you that next week in our baptism, it represents, Lord, the reality, the the, the clarity that, that you are among us and working when we see transformed lives. Lord, there's plenty of ways our church has weaknesses. Man, sinners are here. There's plenty of ways we don't honor you. Make us circumspect and careful and thoughtful and learners. And Antioch would have been the same. They're not a perfect church, but they're lifted up as a model for us to grow from. Lord, I pray that our beloved young people would even hear this prayer. Coming into this room in a moment is a host of senior saints from faith builders who are going to come in here to support our missionaries. May our group even now reach out and minister to them, greet them, be thankful for their years of service, and may we continue to cultivate hearts that are like Antioch.